Amen. Moses is recounting the history of Israel. The nation of Israel is encamped on the eastern side of the Jordan, looking directly across at the region of Jericho, where they're going to enter and begin conquering their enemies. So as we read this, this is Moses recounting the things that have already taken place. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 1. Then we turned and went up the road to Bashan, and Og, king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edri. The Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have delivered him and all his people and his land into your hand. You shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon. Do not fear him, for I have delivered him and all his people and his land into your hands. Do you have things in your life that concern you and you worry about and you're consumed by? You know it's an issue for the Lord. You know it's something that God wants you to deal with, but it overwhelms you. You read the scripture, you're going to find that the Lord has the answers, he has the conclusions, he has the fulfillment for those things. The issue becomes believing that. Believing it with not only your heart, but your actions. Believing it in such a way that your whole structure and your whole posture and your whole life is focused on the idea that God has given you victory. This isn't like name it and claim it, you know, the, the whole health, wealth, and prosperity movement. It's a matter of, you know, for instance, you know, I dealt with drug addiction and alcoholism for years. Uh, the, the Lord told me those things were not to be part of my life, told me he could give me victory, told me he was going to see those things conquered. And yet for years I struggled with it. It was in the submission that I saw the Lord have victory. Follow verse 3. So the Lord our God also delivered into our hand Og, king of Hashben, uh, Bashan rather, excuse me, with all his people. And, he, and we attacked him until he had no survivors remaining. And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city which we did not take from them. 60 cities. That's remarkable. This isn't just we had one or three. They, they conquered 60 cities. All the region of Argob, the king of Og in Bashan, all these cities were fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides a great many rural towns, so surrounding regions, fortified cities, walls, bars, guards, armed forces, and the surrounding farmland countryside. We utterly destroyed them, as we did to Sihon, king of Heshbon, uh, utterly destroying the men, women, and children of every city, but all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as booty for ourselves. Now, got to deal with the issue again of killing all the men, women, and children. 
you can be left thinking this, you know, God is genocidal. He's murderous. He's, he's unrighteous. What we see historically, what we see biblically is every time they don't deal with these incredibly wicked people, the survivors of the attack reform a nation, a people, a group at least, and then they try to destroy Israel. God wants them to be utterly wiped out. You know, the spiritual picture, if you leave some of the sin in your life, if you just compromise and don't get rid of everything, you know, I'm going to quit using cocaine and LSD and crystal meth, but, you know, this beer is really no big deal. You leave the one seemingly innocuous thing in your life, and that becomes a large problem and reintroduces everything else. I speak from experience, and there are many in this room who can testify to all of the same things. You, you leave the foothold, and it will take hold. Now, look at the bigger picture. We see this later when you have Saul, king of Israel, right, who's supposed to wipe out all of the Amalekites in the same way. He does not do that. And in leaving the Amalekites, a few select remainder of them alive, Israel has to deal with the descendants of the Amalekites, the Amalekites all through their history. The occasion of Esther, when they're about to be wiped out, led by an Amalekite, descendant from the king of the Amalekites, go all the way through their history up to Herod, sending the soldiers into Bethlehem and wiping out all the children uh, two years old and under, trying to kill Jesus, descendant of the Amalekites. When you leave things in place, it is going to affect your lineage also. Right? Your children will be affected by your states of compromise. That's tragic. When you're affecting your heritage in the process, much better, much better that you have an uncompromising approach to attacking and destroying the things that God wants to see gone out of your life. Compromise, leave them in place. You're going to pay the price later. They wipe everything out, take the spoils as benefit to themselves, verse 8. And at that time, we took the land from the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were on this side of the Jordan, from the river Arnon to Mount Hermon, the Sidonians call Hermon Sirion. The Amorites call it Sinner. All the cities of the plain, all Gilead, all Bashan, as far as Salka and Edri, the cities of the king of Og of Bashan. The entire region becomes theirs. For only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the giants. Indeed, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. Is it not in Rabbah of the people of Ammon? Nine cubits its length and four cubits its width, according 
to the standard cubit. So Og's bed was made of iron. It was the only thing that would support the weight of his physical frame. 14 feet long, 6 feet wide is what we're talking about. That was his personal cot, right? This isn't like, you know, the queen size bed. This is, he slept on that alone. Massive giant. Now, this brings into question, right? A whole bunch of people have this mindset. How, how about this? Let's, let's, let's get more simplistic. Many of you heard this countless times, but uh, the terminologies we use all the time, right? Evolution versus creation. You know, uh, the term evolution within itself, debatable. Lots of things within that to discuss. But how about just the idea of prehistoric? right? Obviously, you're like, yeah, prehistoric. Okay. Well, compound word, right? Prehistory. Prehistoric. According to the scripture, we have the record of the very beginning of all things, right? So we have a recorded history from the very first moment of all things up until the present. So there's really nothing prehistoric we have the entire history the history of the world and the history of the scripture the bible itself contains both accounts i don't say stories accounts of giants and of dinosaurs you know for the people that are like yeah well christianity create what about the dinosaurs they're in the scripture Right? Job chapter 41 clearly describes the Leviathan and the behemoth there. And describing in creation, in the Genesis record, we have a great description of all the cattle of the field, all of the animal kingdom that was built and assembled and created by God. With that, recently I've had the discussion with you all about the fact that the fossil record proves that the world was different as the scripture describes giants being described here you know 15 foot tall asparagus ferns fossilized dragonflies with 52 inch wingspans you know we, we've got trees that grow right up through every layer of the strata you know for all of that you know, geological column thought that this is the most primitive and the next layer is, you know, more advanced and the next layer is more advanced and they, you know, give all of these different names to the different layer. But then there's a tree that grows straight up through all of them. Are you telling me that the tree is billions of years old? Clearly not. The strata was set down in an entirely different way than what science supposes. There are so many things to argue, right? I've brought up recently the nostril size of the dinosaurs. You know, a, a, a creature that big living on planet Earth today, their nostrils would have to be a minimum of three times larger, some of them, depending on their lung size, ten times larger than what is on that fossil. They couldn't suck air in through that nostril enough to get in their lungs. Science actually supposes, based upon what we see in the vegetation kingdom alone, that the oxygen content on this planet was at least 50% more oxygen 
than what is here today. Just we do that for sound effects, it's for, for drama. You know, it's... Giants. We have the fossilized record. We know they were here. The scripture records them. You know, the, the skeptics are always going to do all kinds of things with this, right? Uh, when you point out dinosaurs and giants in the scripture, they write it off as mythological and legend. But if they dig it up and find it, then they hold it up and say, this is science and this is evolution and the Bible is excommunicated from this. The scripture is the historical record we want to fall by. I've referenced the fact that Genesis chapter 10, Dr. Albright, many years ago, uh, the world's most prominent archaeologist ever, said that Genesis chapter 10 was without parallel in its accuracy, in its depiction of the, the nations of the earth. They have done countless archaeological digs in the locations described in Genesis chapter 10 based upon Genesis chapter 10 alone and found them to be 100% accurate. The scripture is what we want to hold to for the record. Verse 12, in this land which we possessed at that time from Aror, which is by the river Arnon, and half the mountains of Gilead and its cities, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites. The rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the king of Og, I gave to half the tribe of Manasseh. All the region of Argob with all Bashan was called the land of the giants. Jair, the son of Manasseh, took all the region of Argob as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Machaethites and called Bashan after his own name, Hajoth Jair. To this day. So uh, this brings into account they're east of the Jordan, and Reuben and Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh have gone to Moses and asked and made the announcement that they don't want to go into the promised land. They want to take their inheritance on the east side of the Jordan. So this whole region is what's being described here that they've conquered and now they have taken as their possession. The spiritual lesson. Is kind of unfortunate. We've we've you know absorbed it in detail already, but uh, you know a sort of simplified approach to it that you conquer certain things, you see certain victories in your walk, in your relationship with the Lord, and in your faith, and you draw a line of contentment and say that's as far as I want to go. Not not really looking for anything more to happen. In my Christian walk, I'll never forget one of the brothers that attended here years ago. The Lord's moved him on. He's now working uh, in a school and ministry, Calvary Chapel out west. And uh, he was working on a construction site with a group of other men who were professing Christians. And he's sharing the Lord and talking fervently about the scripture and just really adamant about his love for the Lord and all. And one of the guys finally, after many days, bursts out and says, what is it with you guys at Calvary Chapel? Why can't you just be content with getting saved? And as they had a detailed discussion about that, really what he was saying is, 
We go out and drink and we hang out with our buddies and we play golf and we neglect our families and we do all kinds of worldly things that are massive levels of compromise and you guys are all so much more radical about your faith and insistent that we should be also. We've found a way to be comfortable in this world with the things of this world, with the sin of this world, and you just keep pushing and pushing and pushing for greater and greater victory and greater and greater relationship with the Lord. What's wrong with you guys? Why can't you just settle down was literally what he said. There's so much of Christianity that wants to do that. I'm not talking about being like cultic in your level of commitment, right? Everybody wears the same haircut, the same clothes. You know, let's all get horse-drawn wagons. You know, I'm not talking getting weird. But I think we all understand that there's a compromise our flesh would love. There, there is a sinfulness that our frame would love for us to just stop at. That's far enough. You're going too far. Why are you getting so radical? Quiet down is sort of the attitude. We need to push. There needs to be a greater commitment. There needs to be more, especially at this hour. Especially at this hour. The world all around you is hungry for Jesus Christ. Hungry for Jesus. They don't even know it. They don't even know what they're hungry for. Have you ever had the occasion where you just plow through a day of work and you neglect eating and it's not until you sit down and maybe as that smell hits you from your meal or the food actually enters your mouth and suddenly your whole body like your stomach rumbles and everything kicks in and you realize, oh my goodness, I'm so hungry. You didn't even realize the appetite that you had. You'd been so consumed with other things. I mean, I know that's rare because we have so much opportunity to just stuff the food into our mouths, but we've all probably experienced that where you come to a place and you begin to consume and you don't realize the hunger you had. That's the way the world is. You give them the opportunity. You actually get them to pick their face up from whatever thing that they're engaged in and taste the things of the Lord. You'll watch a reaction very often. That's quite startling, quite surprising. People long for it without even knowing it. So here, verse 15, also, I gave Gilead to Mekar and to the Reubenites and the Gadites, I gave them Gilead as far as the river Arnon, the middle of the river as the border, as far as the river of Jabok, the border of the people of Ammon. Plain also with a Jordan as the border with Chin from Chinnereth as far as the east side of the sea of the Arba, the Salt Sea, below the slopes of Pisgah. So just defining their regions, and you can certainly spend your time with a map and see the region there on the eastern shores of the Jordan that they receive. Verse 18, then I command you, commanded you at that time, saying, the Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All the men of valor shall cross over armed before your brethren, the children of Israel, but your wives, your little ones, your livestock. I know that you have much livestock. 
shall stay in your cities, which I have given you until the Lord has given rest to your brethren as to you. They also possess the land which the Lord your God is giving them beyond the Jordan. And each of you may return to his possession, possession which I have given you. So that agreement that Reuben and Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh have made, that they're not going to enter the promised land as far as possession goes. God's going to allow them to keep the land on the eastern side of the Jordan as their inheritance. But the Lord is saying, if you're going to take that as your possession, you're going to have to cross the river and enter into every battle that your brethren enter into in order to conquer their land and them to experience their inheritance and their possession. The spiritual picture, the body of Christ that takes its inheritance in this world, refuses to cross the Jordan, which we'll talk in more detail about there. They are required to enter into every battle that the rest of the body of Christ enters into. You know, you think about it, right? The people that live in that worldly sense of Christianity, you raise the issue of this wickedness in politics, and they all jump to their feet and say, yeah, we're in that fight. You say, what about abortion? And they'll all join you in whatever you're doing. Talk about the school systems and the things, and they want to get involved. But they want to retreat right back to their own comfortable sense of sinful living. Refusing to cross over into the place that God said that they should spend their inheritance and the remainder of their existence in. They're going to enter into all the fights, but they're not willing to enter into the promises of the Lord. It's a really tragic thing. Verse 21. And I commanded Joshua at that time, saying, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to the kingdoms through which you pass. You must not fear them, for the Lord your God himself fights for you. Listen. The battles, the struggles, the things you're going to enter into, the fights you're going to have, you got to remember <clears throat> the things that the Lord has brought you through. Two passages of scripture. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We get the sense from that passage and the way that the world looks on at that passage that our faith is as they describe, right? An empty faith, a hollow faith, a faith without evidence. That's not what our faith is, and that's not what that verse is implying. That verse is saying, you can't see what's ahead, but you can see what's behind. You're going to need to move forward into the things ahead with a knowledge of what has already occurred. Even if you have not had experiences, or at least many experiences with the Lord, <clears throat> you're surrounded by a group of people who have had experiences with the Lord. And you have this scripture, 
which has a recorded history of all of these people's experiences with the Lord, which are testifying to you. The second passage of Scripture pertains to that. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The implication there is that the witnesses he's referring to, they've already completed the race. The witnesses he's referring to are Moses and Joshua and Caleb and Paul and Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and Peter. And they're not watching us to criticize us as some pastors teach. They're watching us to cheer us on. Their testimony is recorded in the scripture so that you can know that you can trust the Lord and have the victory that he's promising you. You've got to remember the victories you've already had, Joshua, and move forward into the victories that the Lord is promising you. Look at verse 23. Then I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you've begun to show your servant, your greatness, and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do anything like the works of your mighty deeds? I pray, let me cross over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, these pleasant mountains and Lebanon. Now, I have several times made the point that Christianity has this mindset that the Jordan River is symbolic of death and that when we cross the Jordan River, then we're in the eternal presence of God. I, I just really want you to grab hold of the concept that the Jordan River biblically symbolizes being baptized in the Spirit. Okay? Before you freak out on that, we'll talk about one more time what's meant by that. Baptism in the Spirit, crossing over into the victorious living in Christian life here on earth is what we're intended to take from these passages. Just so we clear that up once and for all, right? Moses gets to sneak into the promised land. If you've read this passage and you're thinking, no, he doesn't. God forbids it. Even here in a moment, God is going to say, I don't want to talk about this anymore. He does get to sneak in. You're aware of it. In death, he appears at the Mount of Transfiguration. He's in the promised land. Okay? So in death, he gets to enter. He gets to cross the Jordan. He's in the promised land with the Lord. The symbolism here is this life. Nation of Israel, 
slaves in Egypt, freed by God, brought to the Red Sea. New Testament tells us passing through the Red Sea was baptism. All were baptized with Moses. Moses didn't cross the Jordan River. He crossed the Red Sea. What was crossing the Red Sea? Well, I mean, how far do you have to stretch your imagination to understand the blood of Christ and entering into salvation? They wander in the wilderness for 40 years until the flesh is dead, right? What are we trying to do right now? Crucify the flesh. Die to our flesh. Once we have died to our flesh and we live in the spirit, right? Those students in the room can testify. Romans 6, 7, turn the page 8. Life in the spirit. Delivered from the appetites of the flesh. Victorious Christian living. Baptized in the spirit. I don't want to be baptized in the spirit. I've been in those churches. They were all screaming and rolling around on the floor. It's too weird for me. I'm not into it. That's not baptism in the spirit. Okay. You may speak in tongues. You may prophesy. You may have something like that supernatural occur to you when you experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What I can guarantee you will experience and you must experience if you've in fact been baptized in the Spirit is you will fall in love with God in a way you never have before. Amen. That, that will happen. Right? That's the first and the greatest commandment. Right? Jesus summarizes the entirety of the Old Testament for us in two commandments. The first one is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then the second one, I don't even have to say it, do I, right? The second one is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, you will love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I want to be very clear, and I don't just say this to hang up some badge right here, okay? There is a New Testament call for speaking in tongues. And prophecy. I myself pray in tongues. On my own, at home, between me and the Lord. Very infrequently, but it does happen. Okay? I almost never understand what I'm praying, and we can have all those discussions if you want to have greater detail and understanding about that. I'll give you an example of what the scripture is teaching us about speaking tongues and how it happens today and finds a usefulness to the body of Christ. If you've studied the passages in 1 Corinthians, it tells us that if you speak in tongues, there must be interpretation. And when there is interpretation, it will build up the body of Christ. Not the unbelieving world. It will build up the body of Christ. My wife was at a pastor's wives conference a number of years ago, and the Lord was leading her through a number of things about baptism of the Spirit and speaking in tongues and interpretation of tongues. And these are all women that have been part of Calvary Chapel for many years and in the ministry for many years. And a woman near her 
in the midst of this spirit-filled service they were having one evening, began to speak in tongues so that everyone in the room could hear her. And Lori began to pray because it was making her feel awkward like it sometimes does. And she asked the Lord, what is up with that? What is that about? What am I supposed to do with this? What is this experience? And as she was praying, a phrase began to run through her mind. And she wrote it down. And then realized the Lord was telling her, that's the interpretation of what that woman just said. No, it gets better. So then the Lord said to her, now it's your responsibility to share it with the whole room. Because I just gave you the gift of interpreting that woman speaking in tongues, so now you can share it with the whole room. And Lori went through a great emotional experience with that, but basically, you know, because she's so deeply spiritual, told the Lord, no. I'm not going to do that. <clears throat> There's over a thousand women in this room, and I'm not going to speak right now. And the Lord graciously, I'm paraphrasing all of this, told her, that's okay. But that woman is filled with the Spirit. She did just speak in tongues by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I am going to share the interpretation with this room by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Laurie basically was very sheepish and said, okay. And then a woman across Palmer Auditorium, for those of us that have been in that room, stood up and said, I want to give the interpretation for what that woman just said over there a moment ago. But I need to be clear. I'm not giving the interpretation because I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. I am a Christian. I am a believer. But the reason that I'm giving the interpretation is because that woman just spoke in my native tongue. I'm from Africa. And what she said, and she interpreted the worship of the Lord that that woman had just given. And there was a great stir in the whole room. Because that's what happened in Acts chapter 2, you guys. As they spoke in tongues, the men in the street heard them speaking in their own language. The great and wondrous works of the Lord. And it moved the women in that room very deeply. That the fact that a, a person's native tongue was heard. What was most amazing was Lori had written it down. And so as she looked at what she wrote down, it was the same thing that the woman across the room was saying. Do you understand the need for the power of the Holy Spirit in the church today? In your life today? Prophecy. Twofold, speaking forth and foretelling. Forthtelling and foretelling. Speaking forth, thus saith the Lord, and now I speak on behalf of him. Guess what? I've been prophesying the whole time you've been listening to me because I'm speaking God's word on his behalf to you. So I'm speaking forth on behalf of God.
I will now prophesy foretelling something that's going to happen. And if you're like, oh gosh, I wish he wouldn't do that. Here's the deal. If this nation doesn't repent, it's going to be punished. If this nation does not repent, it's going to be punished. Far more than it currently is. This economic collapse that's happening right now, whether you're aware of how bad it is, is because this nation presently is turning away from God more than it has for a number of years, turning into sin more than it has in a number of years, and turning its back on Israel. And the Lord said, you turn your back on my people and you're going to pay the cost. My wife has, she's in college studying nursing, and she has a fellow student that's been basically acting as a tutor and helping Lori catch up from when she was sick with COVID-19. This woman has worked in the real estate industry for decades. She's very educated in regard to financing and housing. And all of you, I'm sure, have heard, oh, the housing market right now, it's booming, right? You want to sell your house, you can do it easily. Uh, all these people are rushing into the state and buying and selling and trading and doing all this stuff. This woman who's helping my wife is saying everyone inside the financial industry and the housing industry are completely freaked out right now because what's going on in those two realms financially is far, many, many, many times worse than what happened that created the economic collapse of 2008. They're saying it's happening far more rapidly and far more aggressively than anything they've ever seen. The, the real economic minds behind this say we shot off the cliff months ago. We're presently airborne financially. Nothing underneath us. And the crash landing is going to occur somewhere out there. How much did you pay to fill up your gas tank yesterday? If this nation does not repent, God is going to punish it. Speaking forth the word of God on behalf of God and foretelling. Right? Both of those things can be far more detailed, right? You can sit here and as you're praying and listening and you hear the Lord say to you, when this service is over, you should walk across the room and speak to that brother or that sister and share this verse with them. Now prophecy gets far more detailed, right? Because what I'm doing is what the scripture refers to as logos. The generalized word to everyone, right? You've done that. You've read the Bible and you thought, wow, that applies. But then you've also turned the pages and you've come to that verse where the finger jumps right off the page and touches you right on the nose and says, you will cast this verse right here. You can prophesy and should. If the Lord speaks to your heart, let his spirit move you and speak on his behalf. Speak on his behalf. All of the gifts, right? Everybody, okay, well, I do want to speak in tongues and I do want prophecy. Yeah, but do you want the gift of helps? Right? 
What's that? Helping people. <laughs> Everybody's like, no, I would prefer to be recognized for being deeply spiritual and saying stuff. Not really interested in doing anything. And that's the problem with a lot of these things. Rewind back to what I said. Filled with the Spirit, you will fall in love with the Lord as you never have before. And, and in so doing, you will automatically love your neighbor in a way you never have before. To help them, minister to them, speak to them, share with them. Build them up in the faith. That's what the Lord is calling us to do. Crossing over the Jordan. Being baptized in the Spirit. Seeing those things conquered in your life. That giant sin that you've kept hidden in the closet, which needs a stone driven right through its forehead, needs to die. What a weird dude David was. Right? 17, 20 years old, five rocks, right? Sling, about 18 inches long, braided leather, probably pouch, one stone. You know, the only reason they spin it around in a circle is when they're waiting for the target to appear. It's usually one rotation. You're going to achieve the maximum velocity with that stone you can with one rotation. They hold it in front of them, they toss it out in front of them, and they spin. As it comes up behind their shoulder, they release, bury the stone right in the giant's forehead. And down he goes. Not the end of the story, is it? Because David goes over and takes that giant's sword out of the sheath and raises it above his head and chops that giant's head right off. And what does David do? He walks around with a giant's head and a giant sword. Showing everybody, look what God did. <laughs> look at this stone. That's a weird dude. That's a weird guy. You know? You're having dinner that evening with Dave, and you finally have to ask, what is up with the head? Seriously. Why do you have that thing? I killed him this afternoon and cut his head off with this sword. <laughs> Sound a little zealous? Sound a little strange? We look that way once the Lord starts to conquer things in our lives. You know, why are you always going to talk about your drug addiction and the way the Lord delivered you? And just because that's the giant that I killed. I picked up the sword of the Word of God and I plunged it through the heart of this giant that had been plaguing me for decades. And I walk around with the trophy and I talk about it all the time because this is the giant that God killed. You need to see the giants killed in your life. You got giants to kill. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. And if you've never killed a giant in your face, look to the person next to you and talk to them about the giant head that they have. The thing that they've conquered in their life. The thing that Christ has given them the strength to conquer. And be crazy enough to take up the mantle and start the fight 
The reason the church is completely ineffective is because it's stayed on the wrong side of the Jordan. It enters into every one of the fights, but it retreats right back to happy home. And it's sinfulness. And it's compromise. And it never sees Christ's victory in the region and in the territories that it needs to occur. Tell me, tell me, there are not giants that need to fall inside the White House right now. Congress, right? I'm not talking about physical violence. I'm not talking about attack and any of that nonsense at all. I'm talking about us on our knees. with a giant's head at our side, praying about the giant over there that needs to die. This, this was the biggest thing the first, the first time, right? They come to that Jordan River and they send the 12 spies over, and that's the biggest reason they have to spend the next 38 years dying, right? Because they come back, 10 of them come back, and what's, what's the number one thing they have to say? Giants in the land, and we're like grasshoppers. We're like grasshoppers. The Lord used... A 17-year-old boy that couldn't even put the armor on, right? He just went out, wet-faced, <laughs> stones in hand. It's an interesting commentary, and I believe it. I, I, don't, I can't verify it, but I personally believe it. David took five smooth stones out of that brook, right? Put them in his pouch, took one, put it in the, in the sling, killed Goliath. We learn later in the scripture, that Goliath had four brothers. In my opinion, David went into that battle ready to kill five giants. And he killed everyone that the Lord presented him with. The others came later. He killed the one that God put in front of him that day. If the Lord is putting a giant in your heart and in your mind right now, it's time to arm yourself. It's time to see the victory had. Because it's going to be nothing but, right, attack and retreat. Attack and retreat if you don't gain the victory. Right? I, I can do all things through Christ, right? All things. Let the simplicity of the Lord be your strength. Now, listen, I'll give us one more. Nehemiah. Sent back, rebuild the land, and we read that verse, right? The joy of the Lord will be my strength. Oh, listen, I want to clarify it again. Because that verse does not say, if you go to church and you're filled with happiness and you walk away with a, a joyful spirit and you're able to float along for the rest of the week on that great, wonderful experience you had, then God will give you strength. <laughs> That's not what that says at all. What that verse says is this. Hear me. What it says is, if you will be strong, you will make God joyful. That's what that verse says. The joy of the Lord will be my strength. If I am strong, I make my heavenly Father 
joyful. You need to be strong. It's going to take grit. You've got to wade into the battle and see Christ have the victory. Amen? Amen. Well, we'll pick up with chapter 4 next week. Why don't we stand and we'll pray. Father, we are very grateful for your love and your graciousness in our lives. Lord, we know you have given us your strength. We often pray, Lord, give us your strength. And Lord, you've given it. Help us to rely upon it. Help us to be men and women of no retreat, no surrender. That we would march forward. Even in the injury, even in the failure, even in the heartache, Lord. That we would know and we would hear that wasn't what you've called us to. That we would allow you to search our hearts and expose the things we need to see. You're not blind to them, but very often we are. Show us what we need to see. Help us to be victorious Christians. Lord, I don't intend this message to be some kind of cheerleading contest. We recognize your strength. We see the great work that you did to deliver all of humanity. Help us to live in your victory. Help us to submit to you and your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.